Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll kick things off right after this. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group is committed to helping Britain recover by supporting the people, businesses and communities of the UK through the challenges ahead. I have received no more than one or two letters in my life that were worth the postage, wrote the American writer Henry David Thoreau. And you could imagine on a really bad day, certain MPs feeling much the same way. To be a Member of Parliament in the 21st century is to be bombarded with messages from constituents. Scores of them, every single day. Letter after letter, email after email. Some are unpleasant. Some are downright abusive. Some are repetitive, the same petitions or campaign points sent over and over again. Some describe complex personal problems. Some are heartbreaking. Some are downright bonkers, but hardly any of them are complimentary. But whatever, they all need replies. They all need care and attention from the MP and their small team of staff. And these endless letters and emails take up many, many hours of their time. Now I know, I know, let's all hear the world's tiniest violin playing for our MPs as they earn 80-odd grand a year for the privilege of making our laws. Boo-hoo, our poor ruling classes having to interact with real humans. Fine, be as cynical as you like, but do bear with me here. Because today I'm going to tell you why the MP's postbag is in fact a vital part of our political life. A kind of social barometer offering a unique insight into what's really happening in parts of the country. And it's also a completely new phenomenon. There was a study in the 50s, I think, which found the MP's mailbag then, the average, consisted of about between 10 and 20 letters a week. Now, you would not find a single MP now who gets as little as 10 to 20 letters a week. You won't find many who get 10 to 20 a day. This is Philip Cowley, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University, London. I think you should see the postbag really as part of the wider change in the role of an MP, the shift from just being Westminster-focused to being involved much, much more with the constituency. And it is quite common now for surveys of MPs to find some who spend more than half of their time doing what in the 1950s or 60s would have been considered quite fringe activity focused on the constituency. If you're lucky enough, or maybe unlucky enough, to spend a lot of your time hanging out, drinking and swapping gossip with MPs in Westminster, and I'm not going to lie, I did very little else for seven or eight years until the pandemic arrived, you quickly realise that their postbags, or more accurately these days, their inboxes, are a massive part of their lives. Some MPs talk about their postbags all the time. Specific cases of deep concern or broader trends in what people are worried about these days. And this matters, because it all has an impact on how MPs behave. The postbag can be an early warning sign, or in some cases a fairly late warning sign, that something's going wrong and something needs to change. When you're getting a sustained level of correspondence on some issue, it's a good way of knowing how policy is actually functioning on the ground. It leads them to think that there may be a problem with the way the policy is working. And this obviously particularly affects, I think, government MPs, because by their very nature, on the whole, they tended to vote for a law, which may be the opposition opposed anyway, at which point they start to approach the minister, the whip and so on, and the pressure starts to build. This sort of internal pressure from their own backbench MPs can, in turn, force governments to change tack. It is quite literally democracy in action. And it also means the MPs themselves, dismissed by half the country as an out-of-touch London elite, are often anything but. They have a direct line to thousands of struggling people in their local areas, and they know plenty about the problems they face. One of the greatest myths in British politics is this idea that MPs now are an out-of-touch elite 
whereas previously somehow they were really involved and in touch with what was going on in the real world. MPs today are probably more in touch with what's happening on the ground in their constituencies than MPs in this country have ever been. It's not just the post bag, it's the amount of time that MPs can spend on the constituency. None of that would have been true in the 1950s or 1960s, when it was very common for MPs only to go and visit the constituency half a dozen times a year, often having never lived there before they were selected. Now, that's not to say that things couldn't be better, and there are certainly some MPs who are out of touch. But I think probably by almost all criteria, they are more in touch today than they have ever been. So there's your shock headline for this week. MPs not out of touch after all. Well, OK, there's always the odd exception. Some attention. Can I ask you, how's the nappy changing going? Uh, Nanny does it brilliantly. <laughs> right. Okay. But honestly, for the most part, Phil Cowley is absolutely right. The best MPs are very much in touch. And believe it or not, they can actually teach the rest of us a thing or two about what's really going on in this country. So, from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're going to have a peek inside two MPs' postbags to find some issues which are worrying constituents in their local areas, but maybe not getting the attention they should be. No sensations, none of the usual Westminster tittle-tattle, not the important but repetitive stuff you see in the headlines every day. Real issues, worrying real people in the real world. Pretty novel, huh? So I have a stupid confession to make. If you can remember about a million years ago, all the way back to late March, early April last year, there was this brief time when, to me, lockdown seemed, well, kind of fun. Now, don't come at me. Of course, the early stages of the pandemic were awful in so many ways. I stayed up through the nights reporting on every bleak development. It was stressful and intense. I had friends and colleagues who fell seriously ill. I was worried about my parents, about mates who worked in hospitals, mates who might lose their jobs. But the lockdown itself, the actual lockdown, those first few days and weeks when the sun was shining and we were all clapping for the NHS and making the same jokes about state-allocated exercise, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. The novelty of it, the simplicity of it. I saw a lot less of Westminster and a lot more of my baby daughter. I cooked instead of commuting. We looked out for our neighbours, they did the same for us. I went to the park a lot. Almost a year on, there's a couple of things to say about that. First, it seems completely crazy to say any of that now, even to think it. The months have taken their toll on me and probably on you and on so many people we all know. We are all sick to death of this situation. And secondly, how ludicrously privileged to be able to say it, to ever have been able to say it. I can do my middle-class, white-collar job from my house. I'm blessed with a happy home life. I don't have a business or a livelihood under threat. My daughter's not meant to be in school yet. Many, many people could not say all of those things, or any of those things, in this pandemic. And that's the thing about lockdown. It affects everyone so differently. And yet the dividing lines between us, suddenly drawn in those strange weeks last March, they were just so random. Those with access to gardens and those without... Those who found their jobs could be done from home and those who couldn't. Those with school-aged kids, those without. Those who lived alone, those who didn't. And no one's keeping a daily count of the victims of lockdown. How could they? How could you even begin to quantify the impact these harsh restrictions have had on 66 million individuals? 66 million different lives? Due to the very nature of the crisis, so many of the victims of lockdown have been hidden from view, shut away in their homes, suffering in silence, anxious and scared. 
and stuck in our homes ourselves, the rest of us don't really know, not really, how our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues, our families are actually doing. MPs, however, the good ones anyway, the ones paying attention, have a glimpse behind that curtain. They have a window into at least some of their constituents' lives. And what they've seen, for the most part, is not good. Their mailbags have exploded in the past 12 months. Their own staff are buckling under the strain. I look at almost every email coming in, and then you wake up in the morning there's another 100. This is the backbench Conservative MP, Robert Halfon. Literally overnight, because people are writing they can't sleep during the pandemic, and that's one thing I've found, actually, is so many people are having sleeping troubles and struggling with their mental health. And these are serious emails. So, of course, you get your usual moans and groans, but you've got emails from people who've just got no money. You've got emails who are asking for help, who haven't had any response from some government agency or the council or whatever it is. And it's relentless. It's relentless. In some ways, Robert Halfon is what you might think of as a typical Tory MP. Born in Westminster, private school in North London, idolised Margaret Thatcher as a kid, spent years as a Tory party official before finally landing a seat. But in other ways, he really is not. He made his name in Parliament campaigning for families struggling with the cost of living, way before it was the issue of choice for so many Tory MPs. He's a proud trade unionist. He suffers from cerebral palsy. I spoke to Halfon from his home in Harlow, a small Essex town to the northeast of London, built up rapidly in the aftermath of World War II. Like every MP, he's fiercely proud of his constituency. It has an unparalleled sculpture collection, he tells me. A brand new hospital, a good tech college. It's the birthplace of Bailey's Irish cream, apparently. But there are serious problems too. In normal times, BC, before coronavirus, most of the emails I get are about either the cost of living or housing. There are thousands of people on the waiting list. Some of the town people live in beautiful housing, but in other parts of the town, uh, the housing quality, to put it mildly, could be a lot better. And some people live in overcrowded accommodation or they might be a single parent living in one or two, two rooms. For many, the cost of living is a constant struggle. So we have a Essex man and woman entrepreneurs, Essex entrepreneurs, but there are also a lot of people who are working just about managing. The husband might work all day or the partner, he or she comes in and then his partner might go out to work in the evening and they struggle to keep their head above water and it's a constant battle to uh, just have a decent quality of life. And so for those people that are struggling, if you've got a combination of struggling with the cost of living and poor quality, unsuitable housing, it strikes me that the pandemic must have had a particularly disastrous impact. Well, that's exactly right. The pandemic has been a disaster because it's accelerated existing social injustices. And the people who've been hit hard are the people who are low paid. They've been out every day. Uh, I was just thinking of the refuse workers, week in, week out, picking up the stuff from the bins. I don't think there's been one week since the coronavirus that the bins haven't been collected, and yet they put their health at risk. You've got people who contact me on email who are losing their jobs or being made to work part-time. You've got small businesses that normally would do quite well. So take uh, beauty salons, for example, and there's a huge misunderstanding about the beauty salon industry in Westminster. And I, I hate it when people just make jokes about it. And the, they are a really important industry. They're trained. 
they do a lot of good and yet they've been really struggling. I've been to see some of them. I've had literally people in tears in front of me, in tears, like just not knowing what to do. And you get emails of businesses, even with the government grant scheme, even with the furlough scheme, who are just on their knees. And we have a lot of micro and small businesses in Harlow. So it's been a, uh, a virus that has swept the board. One issue of particular concern to Halfon is rising domestic abuse. And just to warn listeners, this is the topic we'll be discussing for the next few minutes of the podcast. The scale of the problem is notoriously difficult to quantify. By its very nature, this is a crime which occurs behind closed doors. But there's a firm belief among charities and government agencies that domestic abuse cases have increased during lockdown, both in number and particularly in severity. Very sadly, I've had some horrific cases in my constituency, uh, some of which David Cameron was and Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, were involved with because they were so serious. And uh, it seems to come up again and again and again, and it's very much a hidden problem. Halfon was keen for me to hear one of his constituent stories firsthand. For legal reasons, this is a difficult story for us to tell, which in fact is a big part of the problem here. The woman, let's call her Jane, says she suffered terribly at the hands of a former partner and that this was then compounded by a subsequent treatment in Britain's closed and secretive family courts. Now, as a journalist, covering anything that happens in family courts is almost impossible. Laws dating back more than 60 years prevent reporters from telling the public really anything about what goes on inside these courtrooms. Nothing about the proceedings, nothing about the evidence given, nothing about the treatment or mistreatment of victims and witnesses nothing about the outcomes. The idea is to protect children who so often get caught up in these situations, but the consequence is an almost total lack of scrutiny of how judges deal with any family case. We've had to anonymise Jane for the purposes of this interview, and given the legal restrictions, we can't get into precise detail about what happened to her. But even allowing for that, having spent some time in her company this week, I can tell you she makes an eloquent and powerful witness to the distressing treatment which too many victims receive in the family courts. Like most people in my situation, I think I first went into it very naively, believing that I was going to be protected by the system and the opposite sort of happened. And like many people, I went through family court and suffered because of it and was re-traumatised from the abuse that I had suffered. Many of the procedures were not upheld correctly when they should have been. I started to make complaints to all sorts of entities and didn't get anywhere. So really getting in touch with my MP was kind of a... Yeah, from desperation, I guess. I would imagine you're in a pretty vulnerable feeling state when you first went into it. Would you say the court experience made that worse rather than better then? Oh, absolutely. I think every step of the way, I don't think it's something that you ever get used to. It's so daunting and so frightening and you just don't really know what to expect. And I was a litigant in person, so I had no legal aid in place and I had no legal representation. So I wasn't aware of my rights and they certainly weren't very forthcoming in telling me and putting the correct procedures in place. How much of a struggle was that first challenge you had, which was just trying to get the legal aid? It sounds like that was really difficult. Yeah, it was. So legal aid works on a kind of merit scheme. So you have to prove that you financially can't afford it, which wasn't an issue. And you also have to prove 
that you were domestically abused, which then becomes slightly more difficult. They only take the word of healthcare professionals, for example, like a GP. But unfortunately, it's a completely unrealistic way of doing it because most people who are victims of domestic abuse simply don't go to their GP. And I had a list of other evidence, but they wouldn't accept it. And it became this back and forth, going to the police, ask for records, going to all all sorts of people, witness. I had witnesses and all of that, but I was just constantly battling to try and get legal aid, which I just couldn't get. And you're doing all of this basically on your own. You're not having anyone helping you as you're chasing around trying to gather this evidence together. Yeah, exactly. And and also at the time, I was looking after a very young baby. I'd started to restudy and it was just really, really hard. And none of that is taken into consideration. There seems to be a real lack of humanity to victims when they're going through this and lack of support. And presumably your own you know, mental state can't be the best at that point either. I mean, it's just a very daunting experience. And the first few hearings are often the most important when you're going through a case like that. And if you don't know your legal rights, just basic legal rights, then obviously you're automatically at a disadvantage before you've even started. I went through the most important parts without legal representation, including the fact-finding Wow, that must have been such a difficult experience. I can't even imagine being in court on my own like that. Yeah, and of course it's the worst thing because you're fighting for your own protection and you're fighting for your basic human rights. So it's a really emotional experience as well. Unsurprisingly, this young, vulnerable woman with no legal training or experience and precious little support from those present did not get the outcome she needed. Basic procedures to protect victims were not followed, she now realises, although at the time she had no idea even of a basic right. To be honest, I think I was utterly bewildered and really shocked. I thought, well, we're in the UK, surely we are a progressive country. So I just couldn't believe that this was this was happening I just couldn't believe it and with the extensive knowledge that we have with domestic abuse. Her experience is far from rare. The impossibly tight reporting restrictions mean the family courts are practically invisible within the British legal system so there's nobody to check if victims and claimants are treated fairly and if proper procedures are followed. These laws were drafted in 1960. It goes without saying that views on the way victims and particularly vulnerable women should be treated have moved on somewhat since then. Sir James Mumby, the senior judge who used to oversee the Family Courts Division, he's retired now, said last year the 2012 cuts to legal aid had turned most family court hearings into a lawyer-free zone, and that that, combined with these antiquated reporting restrictions, had created a legal black hole. Robert Halfon told me he's aware of one family court case where a young woman, alone in the courtroom and struggling to understand what was going on, asked for clarity about the language being used. Google it, she was told. For her part, Jane has spoken to other women who face similar situations to her own and says she hears the same issues coming up again and again. Vulnerable women struggling alone, not being listened to, not being believed, not knowing their rights, sometimes being put into horrendous positions with an abusive ex-partner. To start with, I thought, 
that I must have just got unlucky. But unfortunately, I started to reach out and I have now tried to help other women. And I have so many people coming to me with their cases and it's the same thing. And in some cases, it's worse than mine. And it's really heartbreaking to listen to and really worrying. And I think that's what really spurred me to speak out. The government does not deny the family court system has been failing abuse victims for many years and is now committed to a major overhaul of its structures. A review in 2019 found serious failings in the way abuse victims' cases were handled. Last summer, ministers announced plans to provide extra protection in courtrooms, new powers to stop abusers from repeatedly dragging victims back to court, and measures to make the whole process less adversarial. All of this should come into effect when the new Domestic Abuse Bill passes into law later this year, and some, though far from all, of the legal aid cuts have been reversed. But Jane says much more must be done, particularly to open up the courts to scrutiny. She wants hearings held at least partially in public so that errors and mistreatment are exposed and a proper complaints process to be established. I'm calling on the government to ensure that there is a safe and independent body that enables victims to complain regarding their court cases and where judges and magistrates can be held accountable for any wrongdoing. And currently there's only a few places for victims to complain and they're not specialised in abuse and the complaint procedure is far too long. Government officials I spoke to this week accept there is more to do. One of the issues, they said, was the shortage of judges with the proper expertise to handle these delicate cases. Covid, they added, has made things harder, as these are sensitive proceedings which do not work well via remote links. Both Jane and Robert Halfon are also deeply worried about the impact Covid and the repeated lockdowns of the past 12 months are having on people still trapped in abusive situations. When you're in an abusive relationship, it's not just about the direct violence, it's about the coercive control and it's about living almost in a state of fear all the time and being locked in with somebody like that 24-7 just must be a living nightmare. I know that in my own situation, often at the weekends when my ex-partner wasn't At work, I would find excuses to kind of go out and I'd go for a long walk for two hours just to have that breathing space and that break from constantly walking on eggshells. I can't imagine what these victims must go through on a day-to-day, weekly basis, week after week, month after month during these lockdowns where they just simply can't even escape. Halfon, who chairs the Commons Education Select Committee, worries too about the knock-on effects on children. He wants to see mental health practitioners in every school to help deal with the fallout when life returns to normal. There are children who, during the lockdown, have suffered enormous safeguarding hazards, particularly exposure to online harm because they may not have had the parental supervision, exposure to county-line gangs, but worst of all, exposure to relentless domestic abuse because of being stuck at home. And you think maybe we'll be dealing with the fallout of all this for years to come, I guess? I mean, I argue this in my education role, that long after the coronavirus has gone, will children be mired in a swamp of educational poverty and mental health problems? And I really worry that whilst people get vaccined, we'll be protected against this virus, but I think we're going to have enormous social problems and mental health and domestic abuse cases that will be horrific that we find out about afterwards. 
You're listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. And this week we're taking a deep dive into the postbags of a couple of MPs to hear more about the issues troubling people in their local areas. Coming up after the break, I'll be headed west to Bristol, virtually at least, to relive my 90s clubbing heyday with former Hacienda raver turned professional cellist and now Shadow Housing Secretary, Labour MP Thangam Debonair. Stay with us. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Small and medium-sized businesses have been hit hard by the pandemic. Lloyds Banking Group brought business leaders together with policymakers and experts around the UK for the big conversation. A series of roundtables focused on identifying what is needed to help Britain recover. The conversations revealed how businesses in every nation and region have adapted to the crisis by embracing new ways to serve their customers. Lloyd's Banking Group will continue to help build a sustainable recovery and support businesses to grow in the years ahead. Okay, so the first thing to say about Bristol is, I love Bristol. Bristol is fun. I used to go down there as a teenager and it was always a good night out. Bristol to me is live music, it's festivals, it's late night lock-ins at dodgy pubs, it's pounding beats and dub-heavy dance floors. As a young person, which I am definitely not anymore... Bristol was all about the nightlife. So what does a year of social distancing and intermittent lockdowns do to a city like that? How on earth do you measure the impact? Bristol is just an incredible city for its culture and its arts and its nightlife. This is Thangam Debonair, MP for Bristol West. Um, But it's a big part of why people come to Bristol from other cities and other places in the country. It's a big part of why people come to the university here. It's a big part of why people come to take up a job here. And it's a big part of why native-born Bristolians stay here and love it here and those of us who arrive in our 20s tend to still be here in our 50s. It's a very rich and diverse life. We have the oldest still working theatre in the country in Bristol Old Vic. We have some of the best nightclubs. We have St Paul's Carnival which is one of the biggest festivals of Afro-Caribbean culture outside of Notting Hill. We used to have the biggest free festival in Europe which was a wonderful festival called Ashton Court And I used to play in that in the classical music tent, a a little known tent at the very far end of the festival site, which did exist and did have a good audience. Debonair, I should explain at this point, is a classically trained cellist. She's also a former domestic violence officer. She's an ex-Manchester clubber who can recall the Hacienda in its heyday. She's a survivor of breast cancer. She was diagnosed in her very first week as an MP. She's famous for having been accidentally sacked by a forgetful Jeremy Corbyn in a bungled reshuffle. And she's got the best name in Parliament by a country mile. She's lots of fun. Bristol's cultural life is also about the street art. And, you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea. Not everyone loves it. But it is a big part of who we are. It's how we identify ourselves. And everybody knows who Banksy is. But there's also an incredible array of other street artists. Bristol's arts and culture and its nightlife. They're a huge deal. They're a huge part of who we are. And they employ a lot of people. It's obviously such an integral part of the city's identity. I remember going out in Bristol in the 90s and all my memories are about late Ooh. late nights in the pubs and then onto the clubs and there was just always yeah. stuff open and people in the streets. I mean, that is my memory of Bristol as, as, as a 90s yep. kid. And I tried to think about the impact the last 12 months must have had on the city. Can you just give a flavour of, of what it's been like? I feel quite emotional, actually, when you ask me that because it just means that our city isn't as it 
as it is. It isn't as it sees itself. So all of that stuff that you describe, you know, whether or not you want to go from the pub to a nightclub or you go to a classical music concert and then on to the pub afterwards or you walk home through Bristol's just sort of fantastic street life, all of those things have just kind of come to a full stop. And it's not just that the cultural life and our enjoyment of it has come to a stop, which is pretty devastating, but all those amazing creative people who work in all of those jobs, you know, people sometimes forget that that's actually people's livelihoods and years and years of skill and training and craft have gone into that. There are creators in our city who haven't been able to earn at all in the last year. And then you go on to the sort of supply industry. So we've got big festival companies here who run fantastic festivals, not just in Bristol, but across the country and beyond. And all of the event suppliers that go into supplying the bits and bobs, you know, the tents and the bars and the this and the that, they're all dead as well. You know, so there's a huge ecosystem that's really, really suffered. And then you come on to other parts. So, for instance, obviously the restaurants are shut at the moment. But, for instance, the taxi drivers in my patch have a lot of taxi drivers whose living depends on that whole nightlife, that whole ecosystem working. You know, the people who are running takeaways. Yes, a lot of restaurants have repurposed themselves into takeaways. But without all that nightlife that you describe, without people coming home from a good night out, there's a lot of that business that's just not there. It just doesn't exist. Debonair put me in touch with Marty Burgess, a Bristol lawyer by day, but nightclub owner after dark. Marty owns Lakota, one of Bristol's oldest and best-known clubs. I can just about remember spending a hazy night in there many moons ago. Well, we've gone from having a thriving nighttime culture to where nothing happens. I mean, you walk around Bristol at night in the evening, and I I went for a walk Saturday evening with my daughter, and it's just quite empty. What you see is lots of places doing takeaway, whereas I live a few minutes away from Stokes Croft, which on a Saturday night is usually absolutely packed. If you imagine Oxford Street and that sort of Saturday afternoon, that's what Stokes Croft is like. Last Saturday just a handful of people out and about picking up takeaways. It's just devastating for the city not having its nighttime culture open. Do you worry about the impact on young people as well? Young people are sort of missing out on all these amazing experiences that we had when we were, you know, 19 and 20. I've got two teenage daughters and my oldest is 18. For her 18th birthday, I felt really sad for her that she was out at a restaurant and had to be home. It was in September, just gone. Had to be home by 10 o'clock, that she couldn't just go out with her friends and have a huge party. And I think they are missing out on all of these these little things like going out to your local nightclub at 18 are things what kind of make you independent and make you adventurous. And I think they are missing out on that. I mean, they live in the city centre. They should be going to the downs and getting drunk with their mates. I guess you have a fair bit of contact with some of the other nightclub owners and so on. You know, how are people feeling, the people that run these businesses and put so much of their life into them? I think people are just feeling pretty scared. I mean, I'm in the fortunate position that we've been around for a long time and we own our venue. We don't have a landlord ringing us up every five minutes desperate for rent. But I know other people are in the position where they're having to have those tough conversations with those landlords and trying to get them to give them some space. And I just don't think everyone will survive. And also, people have got to keep your staff going. I mean, the furlough scheme is a good scheme in the sense that it's meant that we haven't had to make lots of people redundant. I mean, that's talking about employees, but they're 
you know, the suppliers and the artists are generally freelancers. And those are the people who are really struggling because there's just a dearth of work. There's no work without the bars and the clubs being open. The DJs have nowhere to play. I mean, there's only so many streams you can do over Mixcloud. They're artists. They want to be paid for their art. Thangam Debonair, who I should stress is a Labour shadow cabinet member, says the government has failed the creative sector badly. It does hurt me to know that there are so many gifted colleagues in the whole of the creative sector, as well as just brilliant people who run the most amazing nightclubs and bars where there's you know bands playing. And that all those young musicians, all those young scene painters and lighting engineers and the whole ecosystem, as I said, they've all been robbed of a crucial year. And I think that Everybody gets that there had to be lockdowns, or pretty much, you know, most people get that there were health reasons. But I think what I find very difficult to take is the feeling that government hasn't recognised that all these industries, they all lock together in such an intricate way. And if you pull them apart like this, without adequate support to keep them going when they literally can't perform, if you don't keep them going, they won't be there when we come back. And that will be absolutely heartbreaking because we're talking about a billion pound industry that adds billions of pounds each year in gross value added to the economy. We're talking about something that supports hundreds of thousands of jobs and they're skilled jobs. And it breaks my heart, actually, that this government, in my view, has not helped keep them going, keep them alive, prop them up enough for them to still be standing when we reopen. And we're going to need them. So I think like most people's view of the government's handling the pandemic, obviously they got a lot of things wrong last year. I think most people would say they broadly got the economic support packages about right. Are you saying there's an aspect to it here that they really didn't? Yeah, not for the creatives. I've seen some data somewhere that says that about a third of people who've been locked out from any support at all have been in the creative industries. And that's because most creative people have this really interesting mixture, which in good times is good and interesting, and in bad times has meant they're locked out of the schemes, mixture of self-employed and employment. And that what's tended to happen is that they've fallen between the self-employed scheme and the employed furlough scheme. They don't work in the sort of jobs where you can get furloughed. And they often work in the sort of mixture where some of your income is self-employed and some of it is employed but fixed term. So then that means that they can't actually get the support. That means that we've got creators who have had nothing. Given where we are now, and we're all hoping that we're now about to start a final unlocking process uh, due to the success of the vaccination programme, do you fear that the Bristol that eventually emerges from this past 12 or 18 months won't feel and look quite like the one that was there before? I don't think any of us are ever going to be the same again, are we? I feel like we could. I mean, some people have made the suggestion that this could be like the 20s and the jazz age and we all go back and we're all dancing around and wearing pretty clothes and having a great time culturally. I hope so. Um, I don't know. I wonder because we've all internalised, haven't we, something about being in a crowd and for the nightlife industry, part of what you go out for is the crowd, isn't it? It's... You know, you go to a nightclub, you don't go to a nightclub for the space. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, you don't go for, for the for the atmospheric um, wall paintings, although they might add to the atmosphere. When you go and you go early and there's not many people there, you do kind of feel like, well, where is everybody? So, no, you go for the crowd, you go for the atmosphere, you go for just the excitement. And will we feel the same way about that? I hope so. I hope when we're vaccinated, but it feels a bit distant at the moment. There's another potential profound change as well, which is the way people are working more from home home, maybe feeling like they don't need to be in cities anymore. I, I wonder if city centres uh, 
you know, are going to feel like very different places over the next few years as well. Yeah, but Jack, how many people do you know who are currently working from home who are going, oh, this is great. I never want to go out again. Virtually everyone <laughs> I know is saying I'm never going to refuse an invite for a night out ever again in my entire life. So I hardly know where to start, really. I think, yes, at the moment, unfortunately, absolutely heartbreakingly, our city centres, you know, they have hollowed out. They are empty. And that's awful. Cities are great. Cities are part of where you get exciting, creative ideas and people exchanging uh, new ways of doing things. And something comes out of that sort of combination of creative people getting together. And I would hypothesise, and it's a caveated hypothesis, that most of us are craving human contact of some sort. And I would also hypothesise that probably most of us have internalised the hands-face space message that's going to take a while. But I back our creatives to get on top of that. I just want them to still be in existence by the time they're able to. It's no surprise that so much of what's filling MPs' postbags right now is directly related to lockdown. But what these conversations can help draw out are some of the hidden victims beyond the day-to-day struggle which everyone is facing. Those trapped at home in abusive situations. Those left in disastrous circumstances by the courts. The people behind the boarded-up nightclubs. The taxi drivers with empty cabs the creatives who slip between the gaps of every government support scheme. We're going to return to MPs' postbags regularly over the months ahead, telling more stories from around the country as the next phases of the pandemic unfold. And who knows, by the summer we might even be interviewing happy pub landlords in bustling beer gardens, full of sun-drenched friends meeting up and clinking glasses for the first time in months. We can but dream. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do us a favour, subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And leave a comment too if you've got the time. This episode was produced by Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and our executive producer is Politico's Christina Gonzalez. I'll be back next week and in the meantime, have a listen to our previous episodes if you haven't done so already.